Good morning. We have uh, finally um, now reached the end of our series on the book of Ruth. And uh, if you want to look ahead, we're going to start looking at the book of Titus next week and for a lot of the summer. So um, I encourage you to read through through Titus this week as we get ready to start going through that next Sunday. But uh, as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, we're going to look at the last, um, last several verses, verses 13 to 21 of chapter 4. And I'm excited to look at this passage together this morning um, because as far as endings to stories go, this is as good as it gets, in my opinion. Um, and, and it gives us hope because if this is the sort of story that God likes to write, then what will he do with yours? What will he do with mine? So just to kind of remind you again of the entire story leading up to this part, we have uh, the, the story begins with Naomi. Uh, a woman who lives in Israel with her husband Elimelech, and they have two sons, and there's a, a, a famine that causes them to have to um, feel so desperate for food that they leave Israel. They leave God's promised land to go to Moab, this other country um, that not a whole, whole lot of Israelites think very well of. They go to Moab, they live there, and after living there for a number of years, Elimelech dies, and Naomi becomes a widow, and then her sons die, and she is just left with nothing but heartache. And she returns to Israel with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who accompanies her and, and who makes this incredible proclamation of, of just love for her, commitment to just, I'm going to stay with you until you die, until after you die. With this, you, this is going to become my new home. I'm going to stay in Israel with you. And, uh, and, and then as they come back to, to Israel, you know, these two widows, vulnerable, uncertain about the, the future, how they're going to even survive, God provides for them. As, as Ruth goes out and, and, and gleans in the fields to try to harvest some food, and, and she ends up in this, this field belonging to Boaz, who's a relative of Naomi. And, uh, and she goes to Boaz boldly and, and asks him to be their redeemer, to take responsibility for, for rescuing them and providing for both Ruth and Naomi. And, and Boaz agrees. He agrees to marry Ruth and, and, and be God's provision for them. Um, and and it's, it's just amazing now. This is, this is, after all of that, this is how the book ends. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. Listen to the good news. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage to um, experience what we should as we look at your word, as we look at your truth, as we look at what you want to say to us. Father, we pray that you would make us receptive to hear what you want to say, that it would take hold of our hearts, and that it would produce fruit, that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you say is the most important part of a story? What is the most important part of a story? I, to be honest, I'm really not sure what the answer to that question is. <laughs> but I do know that if the ending is disappointing, it kind of casts a cloud over the whole thing. If the ending is not good, if the ending is incomplete, if there's, if there's a non-existent ending, you can feel cheated. You know, I've, I've sat through movies before where, like, I'm, I'm sitting there and the ending is just completely a mess and it's, it's, you don't get what you want and I just feel cheated. I'm like, why did I just waste my, my, like, the last hour and a half, two hours of my life watching that? It was terrible. Or have you ever been in a movie theater and, and sitting there and, and, uh, and all of a sudden, like, you're, you're watching the movie and things are going along and then all of a sudden it cuts to black and the credits start rolling and you're like, is that the end? It's, it's frustrating, right? If the ending is not good or if, if the ending is incomplete, you have no closure, you have no you know, real sense of, of really accomplishment. You, you, the story loses all of its effectiveness. No matter how good the, the, the characters were, no matter how good the, 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 uh, the plot is, if the ending is not good, I would argue the story, whether it's a movie or, or a book or whatever, it's, it's, it, it's not worth it. <laughs> it's not good either. Um, now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I've noticed that there are some common elements um, to endings that, that make them good. There are some things that you, if you find it in an ending, it makes it that much better. Um, and and uh, I'll just mention, there's, there's three of them here. So, so one, I, if, if a movie ends with, with an, underdog, an underdog triumphing, that, that usually, you know, is the recipe for, for a good story, a good ending. We, we just, uh, this last week, rewatched the movie Miracle, uh, which, I don't know if you've seen it, it's, it's a movie about, uh, to, based on the true story of the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team, the United States hockey team. Um, all these college players that come together and, and uh, back when they used amateurs in the Olympics. And, and they, were, they were going against the, the Soviet Union, and they, they hadn't lost a game in like 20 years. And uh, it comes to the end, and, and they end up defeating the Russian team. And, and you know, the, this, this emotional music, like crescendos, and everybody's piling on top of each other. And you're just like, yes, it's, it's good. That's, that's a great ending. And the underdog triumphs, right? Uh, another aspect of, of good endings is sometimes when there's some kind of really surprising reveal at the ending. Have you ever watched a movie or, or a TV show and like you get to the end and then something is revealed, some secret is revealed, something that has been happening that you never really realized during the whole movie is revealed. It's surprising, it's shocking, and you're like, ah, I can't believe it. I'm going to have to watch that whole thing over again with, with new eyes, right? So there, that can make a, an, an ending of a movie good or a story good when there's something surprising that is revealed at the end. I'm not going to give any examples because I don't want to spoil anything for you. But lastly, there's, there's one other uh, ending that, that, makes, that makes stories really good is when there's some kind of reversal of fortune. You know, when, 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 when something that is lost is found 
or a relationship that has been broken is made whole. When, all of, when, when things that are wrong are made right and fixed. And, and that can be an incredible ending in and of itself. We, we've been um, watching uh, a, this one movie over and over again in our house. It's, uh, it's a new movie on Netflix, or it came out a little while ago on Netflix, uh, called A Week Away. If you like teen musicals with people dancing around a lot and stuff, this movie is for you, okay? But uh, our kids absolutely love it. We've been watching it over and over again. We know all the songs by heart. We're constantly singing them all the time. But, uh, but basically, the movie starts off with this kid who's an orphan. He's lost his parents. And he's, uh, he, he doesn't belong anywhere. And he's involved in some like, criminal activity and, and just uh, mischievousness and stuff. And, and, and he ends up being uh, you know, sent to a, a camp, this Christian camp, uh, a week away. And, uh, and while he's there, he experiences love and belonging. And by the end of the movie, there's this, you know, like final, um, you know, number, this final, this final musical number where he's, he's experienced, like he, he's finally found a home. He's found a place where he belongs. He's found a family. He has a new family. He has a new group of friends. And, and his fortunes have been turned around. All that is wrong has been made right. And you're just like, yes. And, uh, you know, we can't get enough of it. Um, so when there's an underdog that triumphs or, or a surprise is revealed or wrongs are undone, these are all good, you know, elements of, of good endings, I have noticed. Maybe you've noticed that as well. And as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, what's pretty cool is that we have all three of these elements here. And I want to briefly talk about each one of them, mainly to encourage us all to fall more in love with the one who's telling this story who's telling the story of Ruth with God himself, and the one who is, is the author of each of our stories um, in order to, to give us greater confidence in what he is doing and how he's going to end each of our stories. Um, because this is the thing, as we're in the midst of all of our stories, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to believe that the ending is going to be all that great. Um, in the midst of our stories where we're facing a lot of heartache, a lot of struggle, a lot of wrong. And, uh, and, and, so, and also for some of us, it's, it's, it's hard for us to believe that there is going to be an ending. I'm reading a book right now. It's like 1,200 pages long. And I've been reading it forever and I, I haven't even gotten to page 400 yet. And I feel like, am I ever going to get there? Am I ever going to get there? And I think probably we all probably feel that same way as we live our lives. I mean, are we even to page five yet? And it's a struggle, and it just kind of weighs on us. Um, but I want to remind you that, that God is writing a story, and, and he has an ending already in mind and planned out. And it's better than we can imagine. Um, and so let's look at the ending of Ruth to, to kind of think about how God likes to write endings. First of all, an underdog triumphs. And here I just want us to focus our attention on Ruth, okay? Um, remember who Ruth is. She is a classic underdog. Um, she, first of all, she's a woman who's living in a, in a culture and a society that is absolutely dependent on men, that revolves around men. And so if you're a woman and you don't have a man in your life, you are extremely, extremely vulnerable. Um, you have very little power. Um, you have very little ability to 
uh, impact the course of your life. And, and so she's a woman, and, and so she's an underdog. But not only is she a woman, but she's a widow, right? She's lost her husband. She is childless. She has no children. Um, back in those days, you know, you counted on your children as you got older to take care of you, to help provide for you, especially if you had a son. But even on top of that, she is a foreigner. And not just any foreigner, she's from Moab, a country that Israelites tend to look down on. And she's, she's living in Israel. Remember, as, as she comes to Israel, a Moabite woman could, at, at the best, expect people to not pay attention to her, just kind of like look past her to treat her as if she's invisible. Um, but for the rest of the people, they were actively probably looking down on her, judging her, looking at her with contempt. And so uh, remember in chapter one, when, when she comes back with Naomi, how did the women, what did the women say about her? They said nothing. They noticed Naomi and they just talked to Naomi and they totally ignore her. Not only do the women ignore her, but Naomi <laughs> ignores her. As Naomi says, I, I went away full, but I came back empty as Ruth stands there next to her, right? She is the underdog here. Everything is stacked against her. And yet, what are the women saying about her now at the end of the story? Uh, after she marries Boaz, after she has this child, right? She's now married. She has a child. And what are the women saying of her? Look at verse 15. As they Talk about, you know, blessed be the Lord. Um, she says uh, that, that he has provided this redeemer, this child for them. And then he says, uh, th then the women say, for your daughter-in-law, that's Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And, and so the women now in Bethlehem are speaking about Ruth and they're saying that she is worth more to Naomi than seven sons. Um, just as I just mentioned, you know, having a child is crucial. Having a son is absolutely crucial to your sense of value and well-being and your future, right? And so how much more would having seven sons add to your sense of value and significance and worth and happiness? Seven is a number that was um, associated with completeness and wholeness and perfection, and so now they're saying that Ruth, this foreigner, this Moabite, is worth more than seven sons. In essence, the women of Bethlehem are picking Ruth up on their shoulder and carrying her off the field, right? That's the classic ending to an underdog movie, right? Probably the, the most classic underdog movie is the movie Rudy. If you've seen the movie Rudy, about, uh, based on the true story of Rudy Rudiger, who is this guy who had a dream of playing for football for Notre Dame, and yet he was kind of small. He wasn't built like a football player. So he didn't really have any hope of really going out for the team and succeeding as any kind of football star. He was like five foot six. And yet he, he had this passion, this, this desire, and, and, he, and he, he just went all out. And so when he, he actually made it to, to, he went to Notre Dame, and he, he went and tried out for the team as a, as a walk-on. And the coach, you know, appreciated his sense of, of just desire and commitment and just going all out at every practice. So he, he let him play on the team, but he wasn't really playing on the team. He was on the practice squad that kind of prepared the regular team for games. So he got to go to practices every time and, and try to challenge the guys to, to get ready for the, for the next game. Well, finally, the, the, the senior year came around and the final home game 
of the season came around and the coach graciously allows him to dress in his uniform and to run out with the rest of the team onto the field and stand on the sideline for the game. That was like, that was like his dream come true. But, but the game kind of starts winding down and, and there's just a couple plays left and it doesn't really seem like they're going to matter all that much. And so the coach allows him to go out onto the field and play for the last couple plays. Nothing happens on the first one, but then the very final play of the game, he's playing defense. The other team, you know, snaps the ball. The quarterback fades back with the ball, and there's a, a hole opens in the line, and Rudy sprints through the hole and tackles the quarterback. This little guy, this little underdog. And the crowd, the stadium erupts like louder, more excited than any game-winning touchdown. And the crowd is chanting Rudy's name. And it's it's a true story. He is the first player ever to be carried off the field at Notre Dame. And that's the classic. You know, if you if if you if you don't get you know inspired by that, if you aren't moved by that ending, then I don't know what will what will move you. And that's what we have here. You know, Ruth. The underdog, the one that no one even noticed, that no one cared about, no one really took, everyone took for granted, she is exalted and raised up and held up, honored, celebrated. And this is what God does. This is what God does. He, he lifts up the um, underdog, those who are bowed low, the humble. He exalts them. He exalts those who are lowly. And this is something that I think every single human being actually has in common. No matter how outwardly successful you might look, every single one of us are underdogs. Every single one of us are facing things in our life where we feel like we, we don't have it in us. We can't succeed. How are we going to get through this? We have very little hope. And yet, God says, God's, God's attention is on you, and he... And he delights in lifting up the underdog and in holding up the underdog and in celebrating the underdog. On top of that, ultimately, we are all underdogs in, when it comes to our sin, what the Bible refers to as our sin. Every single one of us has broken the template that God has for our life, the design that God has for our life. We failed to love him, to honor him. We failed to love other people the way that we should. And because of that, that has shattered our relationship with God. That has broken it. And we have no hope of fixing that on our own. We do not have the power to fix that on our own. No matter how hard we might try, we cannot make God's team (laughs) And yet that is exactly why he sent his son, Jesus, into our world to live the life that we don't have the power to live, to, to die for our sin and to rise from the dead. And, and for those who have received what he has done, God takes us and he lifts us up on his shoulders and he celebrates us and he delights in us. Not because we are worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. Jesus gives success to the underdog. It's because of what Christ has done that we are lifted up and exalted and God delights in us. That is the hope that we have, those who have trusted in Jesus, the the fact that, that the underdog, you and I, because of our sin, will triumph in the end. Um, 
there's another aspect of the ending here that, that also makes it really good. The surprise is revealed. A shocking surprise is revealed. The story of Naomi and Ruth is, is a great one in and of itself. But then we get to the end, and the author tells us in verse 17, it says this, The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. His father, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if you're an Israelite reading this story for the first time, and you don't know how it ends, it's very likely that you are wrapped up in all of the details of the story, in, in, in the, the suffering of Naomi, the, the heartbreak of Naomi, the, the love, the radical love of Ruth, the courageousness of Ruth, the, the, the compassion of Boaz and the kindness of Boaz. And, and you're enjoying the story, and, and this is amazing in and of itself in the way that it shows us what love is. But then you get to this last line in verse 17 and then the, uh, the genealogy from verse 18 to 22 to reinforce it. And you're like, what? You mean this entire story was about David's grandma? David's grandma? King David? The, da- the, the David that, that became king that all other kings in Israel are compared to. The great king, David. I mean, that's what this story is actually about? It's not just about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. It's about David and his family and where David comes from. And, and, and that, would be, that would have been shocking. They would have had eyes that were wide being like, that's, so, so this all fits into something much bigger than we even realized. And so I think, I think this is helpful for all of us to recognize when we think about our own stories that God is writing a story that is massive, a story that is big, and a lot of times we get caught up in the minutia of our own lives, thinking that our own life is, is really the main story, right? But the reality is, is that, that we, we have no idea how our story is connecting with those around us and those who come after us. We have no idea how, how the events of our own story and how we're responding to those events are impacting people that we, we don't, aren't even thinking about and impacting events that we're not even thinking about. There is a purpose to all of it. There was a, a grand purpose to, to everything that was happening in this story to bring about the existence of Jesse and David. And so it, it, it helps us to look at, at everything in the story with new eyes. It, it, should, it should move us to look at everything in our own stories with new eyes, particularly the, the moments of, of, of struggle and heartbreak to recognize that, that these are things, you know, the, the, the ending here, the fact that Obed was born, the father of Jesse, the father of David, that all was the result of, of real deep struggle and pain on Naomi's part as well as Ruth. And, and, and that should revolutionize the way that we look at our own struggle and pain, whether it's you know, relational struggles and difficulties in our families or our friendships, or, or physical pain, you know, health issues. The way that we respond to these aren't just, you know, it's not just in a little bubble. It, it impacts all sorts of other things that are going on, and God is using it. 
And so we need to, to, to remember to look at the entire story with the eyes of the fact that, that, that God is writing something big and, and it all impacts the big story that he's writing. He has a purpose for it all. Um, lastly, I think the best part here is that, that wrongs are undone at the end of this story. This is where it gets really, really good. J.R.R. Tolkien made up a word when he used to talk about what makes a good fairy story, what makes a good fantasy story, a good story. He, he, he made up this word, eucatastrophe. The, the word catastrophe, which you're all familiar with, with the prefix eu, which means good or pleasant or kind of blessing. So he made up this word, eucatastrophe, and, and that word, he used, he used it to describe the moment in a story where the story takes this sudden, happy turn that pierces you with joy to the point where all you can do is cry. There's this sudden turn of events, this happy turn that pierces you with such joy that, that it brings tears. And, and J.R.R. Tolkien referred to that as, as the eucatastrophe in a story. Often this point of a story is when wrongs are undone and made right. As I said before, when something that is lost, we've given up hope on that thing, is suddenly regained and found. Right? When, when something that has been broken is made whole. When someone that we thought was dead is alive again. And, and, and that is what we have here at the end of Ruth in this, in this last paragraph here, the last couple paragraphs, is, is all of these wrongs that we experienced in chapter 1. Chapter 1 was, you remember chapter 1, as we, as we started out the book of Ruth, there was so much brutal sadness and pain in chapter 1 for Naomi. Remember all that happened at the beginning of the book? As Naomi's married to Elimelech, but, but there's a famine in the land, and, and they, they are so hungry. They have these stomachs that are empty, that they have been moved in desperation to leave the land that God had promised them and to go to another country in order to survive, in order to find food. And, and then while there, there there's, Naomi is surrounded by death. Death after death after death as Elimelech, her husband, dies. Then her sons die. Both of her sons die. She is left without any children or grandchildren. No hope of a future. There's just pain, right? And remember what Naomi said when she came back to Bethlehem and the women said, hey, isn't that Naomi? She says, no, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I've got nothing. Well, what is the picture of Naomi here at the end of the book? Are her hands empty? <laughs> no. Her hands are full. Verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. He became his nurse. Her hands are full with this child, Obed, with her grandson. Her hands are full. Her grandson, who is a, who is a, a, a symbol, uh, not just a symbol, but, but a, a reality that her future will be completely different. And as the women talk about Obed, what do they, talk, what do they say about him? They say he's, he's going to be a nourisher of her old age. Remember the beginning of the story started off with them being malnourished with no food. And now they have this son who's going to nourish them. Remember the beginning of the story started with death. She was surrounded by death and loss. And, and now 
They have this child, Obed, who is what? In verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. All that was wrong is being made right in the birth of this child. All of the wrongs are undone. I've referred to this story before, but speaking of Tolkien, in The Lord of the Rings, there's this this tragic moment in the first book, in The Fellowship of the Ring, where if if you're unfamiliar with the story, because you've been living under a rock all these years, the, 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 the first book of the story, The Fellowship of the Ring, starts off with this group of of people gathered together who are trying to, to accomplish this mission of destroying the ring of power so this, this main, you know, evil bad guy doesn't take over the world and destroy it. So they're trying to destroy this ring of power and they're on this quest and, and their leader is this wizard named Gandalf who's this, you know, incredibly powerful guy, incredibly wise guy, caring, he cares about them, he's leading them, he knows where to go, but at this one point they go through the, the, what's called the Mines of Moria, these caverns under this mountain, and all of these monsters are awakened, and they're chasing them out of the mountain as they're trying to, to escape, and finally this, this one incredible, like, menacing monster is awakened, this Balrog, and, and, he's, and he's about to just destroy them all and kill them all, and, and Gandalf stands up and faces this Balrog, And everybody else escapes, but in his duel, his fight with the Balrog, Gandalf falls into this chasm, and they all watch him plummet into the darkness. And their hearts are broken, and even though they escape, they are weeping. They are weeping. They've lost hope. What's going to happen now? Well, as the story progresses, they, they all get split up, and, and, and in the end, um, Frodo and Sam, these two hobbits, these two little underdogs, <laughs> they actually make it to where they're trying to go to, and at great sacrifice and cost to himself, Sam helps Frodo and even carries him a lot of the way to, to finally accomplish what they were setting out to do, and, 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 and the good guys are victorious. But in the end, as they, as they finish the mission, Sam falls unconscious to the ground. And, and the next thing you know, kind of in the falling action of the, of the, of the books, um, Sam wakes up, and he's in a bed, and he opens his eyes, and he looks up. And who does he see sitting there with him? But Gandalf, who has come back. Other characters found out earlier than they did, but here right at the end, he finds out Gandalf is alive. And he's sitting there with him. And this is what he says. He says, Gandalf! I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, to the, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. I love that line. This is, this is what I shared before uh, in another sermon. But the, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? This is what we see at the end of Ruth. In a sense, all that is sad comes untrue for Naomi. And it's all wrapped up in this little baby who will have a son who will have a son, who will become the great king, David, over Israel. But the story doesn't stop there, because if you continue reading in the Bible, 
and, and you get to, to Matthew, there's another genealogy there, and you see that, that David had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son. And all of those sons lead us to another son, a baby born in Bethlehem, the same town. And his name is Jesus. And this child is the true restorer of life for all who will rest in him, who all who will trust in him. He is the true nourisher of, of those who will trust in him of, uh, to their old age. He is the promise that the ending to your story, if you've trusted in him, will be at least as good as the one at the end of Ruth. Actually, that's just a small <laughs> glimpse of how good it's going to be. In Jesus, we have the promise that everything sad is going to come untrue. In Jesus, we have the promise of the perfect ending. An ending in which all underdogs, because of our sin, will be exalted and celebrated. Um, much of what is perplexing about life will be revealed and make sense. And, and as I said, all that is sad will come untrue. We can take heart that no matter how hard life is right now, for whatever reason, and this is the hard thing, because life isn't easy, and there's plenty to be overwhelmed by, to be discouraged by right now, I know. But there's going to come a time, a true eucatastrophe, as J.R.R. Tolkien would put it. The moment where the story is going to take a certain indisputable turn, a happy turn, that will pierce us with such joy that we will be unable to do anything but cry tears of joy. I know that the, the passage in Revelation we read earlier, it talks about God making all things new and, and how he's going to wipe away every tear from our face. And, and I recognize that when it talks about how the fact that he's going to wipe away the tears from our face, it's, it's most likely pointing to the fact that he's, he's going to, we're not going to have to deal with the things that make us cry anymore, the brokenness of our world, the heartbreak of our world, the injustice of our world, the sin in our own hearts and the hearts of the people around us, the things that make us cry, that we're not going to have reason to cry anymore. But but maybe, just maybe, I think, he might also have to wipe the tears away from our eyes because we are feeling such indescribable joy that we cannot help but weep. I've got to admit, and you probably, many of you already guessed this probably about me, but I'm a major crier when I watch movies, TV shows. Um, you know, when it's, a, when it's a good movie and there's that good you catastrophe, there's that great moment when what is lost is regained, I will cry. I will weep. It doesn't even have to be that good. You all know I watch Hallmark movies, right? I cry. And throughout my life, I've, you know, I've been very embarrassed about that. You know, when I was, especially when I was younger, I'd be in a movie theater and, and, and I would start to feel the tears welling up in my eyes and I'd be worried that the person, the stranger sitting six, six, six uh, chairs down would see me crying. So I just kind of like, you know, just... Just got an itch here, you know? I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with, uh, you know, people seeing me cry when I'm, when I'm watching something that moves me to tears. I'm looking forward to the end of the story. When Jesus returns and he makes all things new, I have a feeling I'm going to be crying and I'm not going to be ashamed as, I, as he wipes away the tears from my face because it's going to be too good. 
Nothing else is going to matter. I think that's what we need to to, to take hold of today in the midst of the the struggle. So I want to encourage us, take hold of him today, take take hold of the one who is writing our story today, the one who died and and who, who demonstrated that he has the power to make everything that is sad untrue by rising from the dead. Let's trust in him. In response to God's word, let's take a moment to um, confess our sin, our need for a savior, our need for a redeemer. We'll use the prayer that's printed in the order of worship. If you have that in front of you, or it's also up on the screen, let's pray together. Heavenly father, most loving Jesus, ever present Holy Spirit, we come into your presence today with joyful hearts and deep gratitude. For we are no longer condemned for our sins, but are righteous in Christ. We are no longer slaves who fear, but are children who trust. Because this gospel is true, we own our sin before you. For the ways we loved poorly this week, forgive and cleanse us. For being more offended by the sins of others than our own, forgive and cleanse us. For coveting a different story, home or spouse, forgive and cleanse us. For acting as though Jesus isn't enough, grace isn't sufficient, and you aren't really faithful. Forgive and cleanse us. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we now take a moment in the silence to privately confess our sin to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10 says this. Listen to God's word. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth.